What came first? Music or the misery? Hello, welcome to Songs in the Keel, a podcast about songs. These might be old songs, new songs or middle-aged songs, anything that takes my fancy really. Sometimes these shows will be themed around an idea, a person, a genre or some other concept. Other times they will simply reflect my latest obsessions, my new favourite bands, those songs I can't get out of my head. So, let's get on with it. Do you remember going to the cinema? That was good, wasn't it? Sitting there before an enormous screen, so big, you were almost inside the lives of Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep or Buzz Lightyear. In honour of the medium, and what with the Oscars not being too far away, How about we take a listen to 10 rather wonderful songs and pieces of music from the world of cinema. One of the finest moments of film blending with music to create a superb double sensory experience must be the soundtrack to Little Miss Sunshine. It's a film from 2006 in which a dysfunctional family take a road trip in a VW campervan, all with the aim of getting Olive, the daughter of the family, to a beauty pageant in time. It's a splendidly cast film with Steve Carell, Tony Collette, Alan Arkin, Paul Dano and Abigail Breslin. But perhaps that cast list should also include the band Devochka, because they do so much to add to the character and feel of the movie. Their songs pepper the soundtrack. Till the End of Time, The Winner Is, and How It Ends being three such tracks. But it's the pounding, rhythmic thrust of The Enemy Guns, a tune that somehow blends the arid heat of a drive through Arizona's desert landscape with Dubochka's calling card gypsy punk sound, that really stands out in the film, used as a kind of leitmotif for the chaos that remains a close companion with the family before, during, and inevitably after, the events of the movie. Listen to this song and you can't help but recall the sight of a husband and wife, a Nietzsche-loving son who's taken a vow of silence, an aspiring beauty pageant daughter, a heroin-addicted grandfather, and America's number one Proust scholar, or is that number two, pushing an ageing yellow campervan along the road as fast as they can before jumping in. If you've not seen Little Miss Sunshine, watch it. If you've never heard Dvochka, listen to them. And start with their album, How It Ends.
pretty much guarantee that any film starring William H. Macy, with the exception of Mystery Men, will be a good film. And you can pretty much guarantee that any film starring Philip Seymour Hoffman will be a good film. So when you find a film with both of them in, you know you'll be onto a very good thing indeed. There are, as far as I'm aware, two films that fit within the overlap of this movie paradise Venn diagram. One of them is State and Maine, an ensemble piece in which the production of a movie descends on a small town in, well, Maine. But the other, the one I'm thinking about for this slot of Songs in the Key of Cinema, is Magnolia, a Paul Thomas Anderson film from 1999, which, again, features a superb cast. Tom Cruise, Julianne Moore, John C. Reilly, and, of course, William H. Macy and Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's been a long, long time since I saw this very long film. I really do need to watch it again when I've got three hours spare. But, as memory serves, it's an epic by any standards, covering a broad spectrum of misery, despair and trauma, loneliness and toxic relationships, with a fabulously portrayed misogynistic motivational speaker played by Tom Cruise thrown in for good measure. And holding it all together comes the soundtrack supplied by Amy Mann. We've heard from Amy Mann before on this series, thanks to her cover of You're a Mean One, Mr Grinch, on one of the Christmas episodes. Paul Thomas Anderson worked closely with Amy Mann with the music on this film, building much of the film around her music, rather than the opposite, which usually happens. He used songs she had already written, alongside brand new songs written specially for the movie, alongside a cover of Harry Nelson's One. The song I've picked for this episode, though, is Wise Up, which had originally appeared on another Tom Cruise film, Jerry, Show Me the Money, Maguire. But here in Magnolia, the song doesn't just appear in the background as per your usual soundtrack. It breaks into the film through the fourth wall with actors singing along to it during a key series of montages. The song itself is a delicate, heartbreaking affair. So perfect for the film, then. It's about needing to do the work. Relying on materialism won't work, sinking into addiction to obliterate the pain won't work. None of those coping mechanisms will work. They never have, they never will. And so what's left? As Amy Mann sings, it's not going to stop till you wise up. It's not what you surprising that the favourite film of this particular music obsessive is a film about a music obsessive. 
or should I say music obsessives. I fully appreciate that High Fidelity is by no means the greatest film ever made. I completely understand that it's not up there with Citizen Kane. Stephen Frears directing here doesn't exactly compare with Kubrick, Hitchcock or Bergman and John Cusack is no Laurence Olivier, Daniel Day-Lewis or Marlon Brando. Nevertheless, I love it. It's proper comfort viewing. I first read the novel by Nick Hornby on which the film is based while I was still at school and it felt like a very exciting, very grown-up thing to be reading. The book is set in a North London record shop run by Rob Gordon and assisted by two equally snobbish music fans called Dick and Barry. But the main focus of the plot is Rob learning what it is to be a proper grown-up man in a proper grown-up relationship. There's a great deal of immaturity as he flounders around thinking he understands what it means to be a man, but also failing dismally. Nick Hornby presents this experience with a great deal of comedy, but also with a great deal of honesty and authenticity. It's a warts and all account of a man, or at least an adult male, being, well, an adult male. When I discovered that there was going to be a film of High Fidelity released, I was apprehensive, not least because it turned out the film was going to be set in Chicago. How could such a very English, a very London novel, survive the journey across the Atlantic? In the end, there was very little to worry about. The transition from page to screen was entirely smooth. Something of Rob's snarky cruelty towards his girlfriend gets lost somewhere along the way, but aside from that, it's a fairly faithful telling. And the fantastic thing about the film is that you get to hear a lot of the music the characters obsess about, something that simply doesn't and can't happen when reading the book, unless you go to the effort of picking out the music to listen to as you go along. The soundtrack is spellbinding, featuring Bow Wow Wow, Elton John, Bell and Sebastian, Anne Peebles, Smog, Barry White, Love, The Chemical Brothers, Aretha Franklin, The Stiff Little Fingers, The Beta Band, or Beta Band as they're called in this film rather annoyingly, Al Green, Elvis Costello, Grand Funk Railroad, Harry Nelson, Jackie Wilson, Bob Dylan, The High Llamas, and Marvin Gaye, to name but a few. Bruce Springsteen even makes a cameo appearance as some kind of inner voice made flesh, an angel on Rob's shoulder, complete with electric guitar. The very first song you hear on the film is You're Gonna Miss Me by the 13th Floor Elevators. It's an angry, lo-fi, psychedelic record from 1966, full of snarly bitterness. And it's absolutely perfect for the scene. Laura, Rob's long-suffering girlfriend, is about to leave their flat for good. They've split up because she can't see a future for them anymore even though Rob really can't see what the problem is. He's angry, he's fuming, and he's very confused. He ends up doing the only thing he can. He whacks the song up to full volume and screams and shouts out of the window at him. You're gonna wake up one morning as the sun
2019's Joker was a powerful film that haunted me for days after watching. The last decade or so has seen cinemas awash with superheroes and their nemeses, thanks to the endless supply of movies from the Marvel Cinematic Universe and, to a lesser extent, films starring DC characters like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman and Aquaman. The Joker movie, though, is something a little removed from all the special effects and fight sequences that we've come to know and love over the years. It's a kind of comic book movie for people who may not like comic book movies. There's a very real world setting. No one can fly, no one can move objects with their mind. There isn't even some multi-squillionaire with a battery of high-tech weaponry hidden away in the basement. What there is, though, is a man who finds luck failing him again and again and again. Already suffering from some form of mental turmoil, things get worse and worse for him until he completely unravels, finding solace for himself in the form of an alter ego, the Joker, with disastrous results. In the midst of the film, there is a gut-wrenching moment set on a subway train where Joaquin Phoenix's Arthur Fleck, the titular Joker, is approached by three businessmen who find his nervous tick that of laughing hysterically whenever he's nervous amusing. One of them starts to sing Stephen Sondheim's Send in the Clowns, prompted by Fleck wearing a clown costume. It ends very, very badly. As the credits roll much later down the line, the song reappears, this time sung not by a cast member, but by Frank Sinatra. It's devastating in its delivery and absolutely perfect for the film. Although there's an obvious link between the song referencing clowns and the main character who spends much of the movie dressed as one, the more substantial, more vital link is that of a feeling of absolute desolation, of failure and despair, of feeling that one's situation is so spectacularly awful that it can only be described as an absolute farce. Where are the clowns? There ought to be clowns. Don't bother, they're here. Isn't it rich? Are we a pair? Me here at last on the ground, you in midair. Send in the clowns. Isn't it bliss? Don't you approve? One who keeps tearing around, one who can't move. Alongside High Fidelity, there's another great movie about music to feature in this list, of course. To be honest, there are plenty of films about music and musicians out there. Everything from the biopics of Control, Rocket Man, and Love and Mercy, through to the fictional accounts of musical obsession, Brassed Off, Empire Records, and of course, Spinal Tap. Almost Famous sits somewhere between the two, being a fictionalised version of Cameron Crowe's experiences as a teenager 
who once managed to blag his way into reporting for Rolling Stone magazine in the 70s. It's a nostalgic hymn to naivety and coming of age, tracing teenager William Miller's discovery of a life far beyond the restrictions imposed on him and his sister by his mother, excellently played, but of course, by Francis McDormand. He falls in with a band called Stillwater, with members played by Billy Crudup and Jason Lee. As if to prove a point made a little earlier in the episode, he is given some excellent advice by Lester Bangs, played by, yes, you've guessed it, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who advises William not to get too close to the band to maintain a professional distance. While ostensibly it's a film about a teenage boy's loss of innocence, it's as much about members of the band and their entourage becoming aware of just how much of a bubble they have constructed for themselves. While our hero is inevitably going to have some naivety thanks to his age and restrictive upbringing, the members of Stillwater are just as naive, only willingly so. Perhaps that's why Cameron Crowe chose that name for the band. What is Stillwater, after all, if not stagnant? It's why the music in this film becomes such an important part of the movie, offering portals of light into the character's self-absorbed or wide-eyed lives. Elton John's Tiny Dancer provides a moment of pure joy for the group as they sing along to the song between gigs, providing a glimpse of the happiness they only pretend to have most of the time. But the song I've picked here is America by Simon and Garfunkel. It's a song of aching beauty about an endless quest to find some preconceived version of happiness over the horizon. It's played early on in the film when William's sister, played by Zoe Deschanel, leaves the staleness of life with her mother and encourages him to listen to records she's left under her bed for him. It perfectly encapsulates everything about the rest of the film and it's absolutely delicious. Let us be lovers, we'll marry our fortunes together I've got some real estate here in my bag So without a pack of cigarettes And this is where the pies And walked off to look for America In 1999, a film came out that felt like it was going to change everything. As memory serves, it came out to very little in the way of fanfare at the time. It was a kind of heard it on the grapevine affair. But when I went to see The Matrix with my friends Peter and Justin, it felt like it blew absolutely everything else away. Here was a film that mixed philosophy with ancient mysticism with up-to-the-minute technology, all presented with slickness in the very latest special effects. It was a film that revolved around the concept of the world as we know it being little more than an immersive computer game, a piece of exceptionally realistic virtual reality software, and its visual effects were designed to match this concept. Bullet time became a phrase immediately associated with an innovation in cinematography first used in The Matrix, and then copied a hundred times over in parody or tribute, a means of filming a scene in which slow motion and fast motion appear to run in parallel, 
the camera, in actual fact, cameras, panning round actors at high speed while their actions appear to be incredibly slow. The high-octane soundtrack was mesmerising as well, featuring the propeller head spy break for the famous lobby gunfight scene and Rage Against the Machine's wake-up for the final moments where Keanu Reeves' Neo realises his full potential. But one of the finest musical points in the film is the moment when Neo is being guided through what it really means to be experiencing life in a constructive reality. He is plunged into a training program version of the Matrix where Morpheus, his guide and mentor, is explaining what everything means while people dressed solely in black and white pass him by. It's not long before Neo gets distracted by a glamorous woman in a red dress. Are you listening, Neo? asks Morpheus. Or were you too busy looking at that woman in the red dress? It was a test and he's failed. That scene is accompanied by Rob Dugan's Club to Death, an intense sounding amalgam of classical tropes, including a nod to Nimrod from Elgar's Enigma variations, and trip hop. It's a big, big sound to match the big, big themes of the film's apocalyptic vision, and it's rather splendid. television was Ulysses 31. I didn't realise it at the time but it was a sci-fi rebooting of Homer's Odyssey in which one of the heroes of the Trojan Wars, Ulysses, voyages home to his wife Penelope having plenty of adventures on his way. The children's sci-fi reimagining saw Ulysses flung into the 31st century accompanied by his son Telemachus, a blue-skinned humanoid girl called Yumi a comatose crew including Yumi's brother Numenor and a rather annoying little orange robot called Nono. It had an excellent theme tune and even the incidental music kicked some serious musical arse, boasting a kind of prog rock influence recalling something of metal era Pink Floyd, as I probably didn't think when I was seven. Several years later, while at university, I encountered a new interpretation of Homer's Odyssey, 
this time set a little closer in time to the original source material. Oh Brother Where Art Thou, a Coen Brothers film starring George Clooney, John Turturro and Tim Blake Nelson, reimagined Homer's tale in Depression-era America, with three escaped convicts making their way back home through the Deep South. During their travels, they record and perform a song, I Am A Man Of Constant Sorrow, originally attributed to a partially blind fiddle player by the name of Dick Burnett. It's a perennial breakup song that has since been sung by the likes of Judy Collins, Joan Baez and, of course, Bob Dylan. But in the film, the trio who perform and record the song go by a name you might expect Paul Hollywood, Noel Fielding and Matt Lucas to come up with if ever they launched a musical career. The Soggy Bottom Boys. And it goes like this. In constant sorrow through his day This ambivalence teetered rather closer towards loathing when I found Sky Sports had decided to appropriate the main theme from Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream for the purposes of promoting premiership matches. As if the drama and angst and passion found in that dazzling piece of cinematography could ever be compared with a bunch of overpaid egos running around a patch of grass in pursuit of a ball. Brian Clough may have made some wry comments about football being more important than life or death, but this seemed to completely take the biscuit. I was unimpressed. Requiem for a Dream is not for the faint of heart. It's a tale of addiction. There's a story about a young couple heavily involved in the form of addiction you are probably most likely to imagine when presented with that word, heroin. But there's also a story involving an older woman, Sarah, with an addiction to television and eating which then leads to an addiction to prescribed medication. Though both intertwined stories are intense and gut-wrenching, it's that second story that packs a particularly powerful punch, because overwatching and overeating and even over-relying on prescribed drugs are not activities that form part of an underworld experienced by the people over there. They are forms of addiction that are more dangerously more readily formed without ever having to encounter a dealer or hang out in the wrong part of town. And all the while that music, that music, that pounding incessant foreboding music performed by the Kronos Quartet that spells out the pain everyone's going through in the film. Or apparently that there's going to be another particularly tedious encounter between Chelsea and Spurs this Saturday as part of some endless series of soccer ball matches. Now there's a reason for despair and loss of all hope, if ever you heard one. Hey, 
just as with the Matrix, Donnie Darko seemed to emerge from out of nowhere. And just as with the Matrix, it was thanks to my much-missed friend Peter Avel that I came to watch it. A great deal of the films I have come to love, at least three of them appearing in this episode, have been thanks to him. So I'd like to dedicate this episode to his memory, to someone who left this life far too soon. Peter, Justin and I went to the Gloucester Multiplex to watch Donnie Darko, and I remember a spellbound conversation where we talked with an almost reverential hush as we left the cinema, marvelling at how the plot worked on such an intricate level, how it had triumphantly dodged the usual dangers of paradox usually associated with time travel stories, how it had ultimately all made sense while juggling with a whole load of different ideas, while presenting a beautifully told story with fully rounded characters, playing homage to a version of the 80s that on one level appeared to recall the films of John Hughes, and at the same time present a total antithesis to them. Donnie Darko is the story of the eponymous character's discomfort in the world, how he seems to be disjointed from everything and everyone else somehow. It's not helped by the fact that he is a prolific sleepwalker and has an imaginary friend who just happens to be a six-foot-tall rabbit called, not Harvey, but Frank. Why are you wearing that stupid bunny suit? Donnie asks the rabbit one day, to which the rabbit responds, Why are you wearing that stupid man suit? It's an exchange that neatly sums up a film that explores identity and incongruity. The soundtrack is peppered with indie tracks from the period, a bit of Joy Division here, a bit of Echo and the Bunny Men there, a bit of the church thrown in for good measure over yonder. But the song that stands out particularly well is Head Over Heels by Tears for Fears. Excellent though they obviously, obviously, obviously are. Love Will Tear Us Apart and The Killing Moon are almost a little too on the nose, a little too obvious a pairing of songs to accompany a film about isolation and adolescent angst in the 80s. Their inclusion is pretty much inevitable. Head Over Heels though is a fascinating inclusion for the soundtrack coming from a band that have more of a pop sensibility than the gothy, post-punk sounds of the other acts appearing on the soundtrack. But it absolutely works. There's a dark tinge to this song, as with many of their other songs, that matches the feel of this movie absolutely. At its heart, it's a love song, but it's a love song in which the singer is trying to untangle a whole mass of confused feelings about the object of his affection, and everything else around him. Musically, it's one of the finest songs from the 80s. Those chiming piano chords, the shimmering strings, and the almost falsetto vocals of Roland Orzabal. They are all absolute perfection. I wanted to be with you alone And talk about the weather I'm lost in admiration 
finish off with a nod towards the best 80s film that the 80s ever gave to us. No, I'm not talking about Flashdance, I'm not talking about E.T. I'm not even talking about Howard the Duck. No, I'm talking quite obviously about Back to the Future, the film that made DeLoreans, Gilets and Huey Lewis in the news the height of cool. There is absolutely nothing wrong with Back to the Future. It's a textbook in perfect screenwriting, with pretty much the whole of the first 20 minutes serving to foreshadow some pivotal moment later on in the script. There's action, comedy, romance, peril and brill cream galore in this film. There's not much point in talking too much about it because quite obviously, unless you've been a crustacean that's been sleeping somewhere under the sea for the last 36 years, you have pretty much inevitably seen this film, at least twice. Talking of Under the Sea, that's where the final piece of music for this episode can be found. More precisely, the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. The music for the pivotal make-or-break scene where Marty's parents must get together to ensure Marty doesn't completely vanish into thin air is provided by Marvin Berry and the Starlighters and the first tune you hear them play is Night Train. It's a 12-bar blues standard that can find its roots in the music of Duke Ellington, even though the form in which it is now recognised is usually attributed to a former member of Ellington's band, Jimmy Forrest. It's a wonderful raspy blues tune, guttural and gritty and glorious. And the Jimmy Forrest version goes something like this. tuned from some of the finest soundtrack moments in cinema. I hope you enjoyed them. Please feel free to drop me a line on at Reviewage on Twitter with your thoughts, feelings and suggestions as to your own personal choices of songs in cinema. I'll be back shortly with songs in the key of something else sometime soon. In the meantime, have a marvellous few days and nights till we meet again.